morning. We're too much scrolling. I'm Steve. I'm Chip. And we have all the information you need to survive another week. New shows published every Tuesday. Find us on iTunes and Stitcher and TuneIn Radio. And you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. We'll see you in the future. Travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the entangling task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Witt, and today we have an often entangled three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello, hello. There we are. And finally, we have our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series but and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've read for this podcast, and this time around it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Hello. Yes, there we are. Before we get to talking about the book... Please remember our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book. Not, <laughs> not, not, just not. As a gift for supporting us, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. As usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, and Toby Bengelsdorf. Thank you, gentlemen. <laughs> We also have a new discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts, and best of all, it's on Goodreads. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. <laughs> we continue now with the penultimate story in the inaccurately named Monster Season, the novelization of The Web of Fear. Ooh, just in time for Halloween. Without further ado... Here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Web of Fear, adapted by Terrence Six from the Mervyn Hazeman and Henry Lincoln script that aired from 2368 to 3968, published by Target Books in August 1976. As of this recording in October of 2018, the title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 127 pages. Interesting that a monster like the Great Intelligence would make a return appearance so quickly, but it all came down to the musical chairs being played behind the scenes in the Doctor Who production office at this time. Peter Bryant, who had been the script editor on The Abominable Snowmen, was going to become producer, and he felt so strongly that Hazeman and Lincoln's script was a sort of Earth-based story he wanted to do that he commissioned them to write the sequel before the first episode of Snowmen was even aired. Hmm. It was also meant to close out the season, but there were some big issues with Fury from the Deep that kept that one from being ready, and it had to be rewritten a little bit, and it was pushed back while this one was pushed forward. When we get to that story, we'll have to talk about how that knock-on effect would have uh, changed things significantly. Yes. Yeah, this feels like it would have made a, a good season Season ender. closer. But it probably would have had to change the story as well. Yes, among other things, <laughs> definitely. Another massively significant thing about this story, though they didn't know about it at the time, was that it would introduce one of the most popular returning characters in the series history, Brigadier, then Colonel, Alistair Gordon Lethbridge-Stewart, played by the late Nicholas Courtney. Nicholas Courtney had previously appeared as Sarah Kingdom's ill-fated brother by another mother, Brett Vian in the Daleks Master Plan. Oh, yeah, that guy, yeah. Yeah, that guy. It was actually sheer luck that Courtney got the part, as it was originally meant to be played by David Langton, who would eventually go on to great, uh, great fame, maybe even greater fame in this country, as Lord Bellamy on Upstairs Downstairs. Langton dropped out at the rehearsal stage, and the younger Courtney, who was cast as Knight originally, was promoted to the role. Tells you how little anyone thought of this character at the time that his first meeting with the Doctor doesn't even occur on screen. <laughs> Trout was on vacation for the making of episode two, and their meeting happens off camera. So what we get in the book is dicks. Well, as usual. <laughs> Typically, our first sight of the Colonel occurs in the one episode that remains missing, because mm. this is a six-parter and we're still missing episode two. 
Obviously, as we've seen in the novelization, Dix sets all of this right, since by that point the Brigadier had become such a major player during the Pertwee era, during which Dix was script editor. A few other fun things about this story. The Yeti suits were altered to make them scarier than they had been before, which is why we have that transformation sequence in the first chapter because they were cute and cuddly originally, and here they're just terrifying. And they were finally given a scary growl, which was achieved by recording the flushing of a toilet (laughs) and then running it through various processors. (laughs) It's actually more effective than it sounds. The combo of these things led the BBC to issue a special trailer at the end of the last episode of Enemy of the World to warn kids that they should probably watch these episodes with their parents. They probably also should have been warned that the story would take place in the underground, on the very tracks where many of those cute little chillins <laughs> commuted to school. That seems much scarier than the toilet roar. Much yeah. more. In yeah. fact, these were sets that were constructed when it was discovered that actually filming in the underground would have been cost prohibitive. But the recreations that the BBC design department came up with, be, between being beautifully detailed and shot on film, were so convincing that the BBC got a complaint from London Transport, who believed the director and crew had had to have filmed down there without permission. Which that what every on-the-cheap filmmaker does in New York. They just go down late at night and yes. do it with no permits because it's so expensive to do it on the up-and-up. They do. This actually worked out better because, for one thing, it was you know probably cleaner, even in uh, 1968. Yeah. But they look beautiful. The episodes are just lovely. They were recovered um, 2013, same time as Enemy of the World, and same thing with Enemy of the World. Enemy of the World, when we finally saw it, it was like, oh my god, this is beautiful. Same thing with Web of Fear, even though we always had episode one, and that's one of the better episodes. So... But that's, that's rather nice, though, as opposed to the episode being built up in everyone's memory, mm-hmm. and then they see it again after decades, and they're like, oh, right. well, Tomb of the Cyber I didn't have very good taste when I was six years old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tomb of the Cybermen suffered greatly from that, in fact. This one, however, listeners, I sent this out to our panelists with the cover edited, Mm-hmm. because I wanted them to be surprised by the return of the Yeti, because on the cover that they have, the Yeti is shooting a soldier or is being shot by a soldier, and Patrick Troughton is also on the cover. As a matter of fact, if I remember that cover originally, it gives away who the Great Intelligence is taking mm. over the brain of as well. Mm. This one does the same problem. It still has a Yeti, and it still has a Ye- it still has a Yeti shooting laser beams out of its eyes, which they do not do. <laughs> But at least it's a little more atmospheric. This just reminds me of an Ewok without any clothing. It kind of is. But a big fucking Ewok that growls and it sounds like a toilet flushing. Yeah. But uh, unfortunately, Dalton tells me before uh, recording that I didn't think to check the chapter names. Because the chapter names give it away. It's not your job to uh, clean up after... Everyone else's literary indiscretions. But also, the very first paragraph, the huge furry monster reared up as if to strike. Well over seven feet tall, its immensely broad body made it seem squat and lumpy. It had the huge hands of a gorilla, the savage yellow fangs, and fierce red eyes of a grizzly bear. That is the description of the Yeti that we know from the previous books. So, And also, so, before the end of the first page, it's the second from the last paragraph. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't so like, I, me to, what, like me to be a fool, Professor Travers, fool enough to give you back my Yeti. <laughs> yeah. So, so I didn't surprise yeah. anybody this time. Mm, eh. I didn't know it was coming before that, certainly. Okay. No. Like, we had to actually start reading it before we Good. knew. But. but it still was ruined for you very quickly. As it would have been on screen, too, because... It was ruined. I actually like that when the story starts, by God, it starts. Like, oh, by God. the end of the, the first few cha- I mean, the first few pages, the end of that first chapter, they've, yeah. and it's, they've got the city going down. And it's actually even better on the page than it is on screen, believe it or not, because... Dix does something pretty remarkable with this book. He reorders the events in such a way that you don't know what's happened to London until the Doctor and his companions find out. And then you're like, oh my god, this yeah. is, this has yeah. gone on for quite a while. It's hard to tell what's going on time-wise in the televised version. Like when? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's hard to figure out how long after the, the first scene, which is in the museum, the Doctor and company arrive. 
Whereas here, you do know it's weeks and weeks later after the uh, fungus has already taken over. The fungus, the web, whatever the hell it is. Whatever it is, it must not feel good. Until you die, of course, and then you don't really care. Yeah. Don, would you like to read the back of the book for us? Sure. Okay. Um, sure. Uh, Forty years... Ugh. That's a weird sentence. Forty years, the Yeti had been quiet. Collector's item in a museum. Then, without warning, it awoke and savagely murdered. That's terrible, isn't it? Yeah, that grammar's weird. Yeah, keep going. I'll keep going. Uh, <laughs> at about the same time, patches of mist began to appear in central London. People who lingered any time in the mist were found dead, their faces smothered in cobwebs. The cobwebs seeped down, penetrating the underground system. Slowly, it spread. Then, the Yeti reappeared. Not just one, but hordes, roaming the misty streets and cobwebbed tunnels, killing everyone in their path. Central London was gripped tight in a web of fear. Oh, wow. Roll credits. Yes. Good lord. It happened. I think that the description in the um, original is probably different. In fact, tell you what. Pause. <laughs> Let me check to see if I can find it. I'm going to have to go into the Dropbox and get it. Okay, so give me two seconds. I can find Dropbox. Where the fuck did Dropbox go on my phone? There it is. And we'll have Alice read the back of the uh, other one. If it's I don't there. know. I'm intimidated after. Are you? Dalton, <laughs> this grammar. That one gave just... Dalton a hard time. Well, the grammar is just weird. Grammar's awful. This look at this first. It's it's missing an article. It should be a collector's item in a museum. Or collector's items in mm-hmm. a museum. Yeah. It, yeah. Okay, you know what? It is because it's exactly the same copy. Except, guess what's missing? The A. Before a collector's item in a museum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no need for you to read this house, and you're fine. In fact, I probably won't even cut any of that out. Yeah. It's, Is it so enthralling it, and entertaining? It's exactly the, the same copy. Mm-hmm. It's just on a different background. Look, look, look. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, oh, sorry. Here's the original um, Here's the original cover. That guy that's being surrounded by the um, Yeti's uh, eye web or whatever, sleep Mm. web, is, um, what's his name, the one who uh, was taken over by the intelligence. Arnold? I don't think that cover would give away much. He just puts his thing killed by it. That's true. That's true. But it it is weird that Arnold is on the cover. So I think that's basically the thing. I mean, it's still a surprise when it turns out to be Arnold because he's made so little of an impression throughout the book. I didn't remember who Arnold was at all. Well, and there were multiple. It's it's some guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the Chorley guy, he was totally who I was pinning as the one. Or or Evans. Or Evans. Yeah. I was thinking Evans, yeah. mm -hmm. Yeah, they were. Dix is kind of leading you down that path. So does the televised version. It does so much more. uh, Much more so. So it does come out of the blue when you get that surprise. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about first impressions and things that you thought about this book. What did you think? Tell me. Tell me now. <laughs> I thought it got off to a really fun, roaring start and then completely petered out at the end. Seriously? Yeah. Really? Which part? Which part leaves you aghast? Uh, the, the petered out? <laughs> run, run, run. Who's possessed? This one, no, that one. Oh, everything's done. We're leaving now. Oh. It, sorry. <laughs> Perhaps that was a bit cynical, but it's my turn. Okay. No, no. I thought that when the story starts, it really starts. Yeah. So by the end of that first chapter, you know, uh, there's this massive, uh, there's actually a nice word picture here, this sort of massive catastrophe. I'm not painting a good word picture here, but the, mm-hmm. the idea of the entire city is literally and figuratively wrapped in this confusing, completely mystifying web of events that don't seem to relate to one another, but obviously are, I thought was a great atmospheric confusion. Okay. But then towards the end, I was like, yeah, more people running through tunnels like all the ones we've read recently. Yeah. It, it is a base under siege story. Yeah. That is true. Well, and it's the same problem that we've had in multiple other stories where four-fifths of the story takes up 95% of the book. Yeah. True. And so, like, yeah, the the ending, when everything's getting wrapped up, when the Doctor's finally going to thwart the Great Intelligence, his plan is going to come to fruition, it all just kind of, yeah, it's it's like three pages. Yeah, that is true. And it's just like, boom, 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 done. Even, even a novice knows it's significant when they're encountering Unit for the first time in its embryonic phase. And it's actually one of those things that kind of... 
I don't know, it's, it's intimidating if you're watching the new series with experienced fans. Like, oh, it's Unit, it's the greatest thing ever. Like, I don't know what anyone is talking about. Right. I don't know all these stories that are being called back to that everyone else is excited about. So mm-hmm. it, it, it was actually kind of fun to be... Yeah. To, to read the original story. Uh, from Obviously written, novelized several years later. So yes. it's written as significant in a way it wasn't significant when it aired. And it's kind of presciently so because Dix couldn't have known that that character would take on the importance that he has in Doctor Who continuity. Because by that point, he had just ended his role as the Brigadier on Doctor Who in 1976. Um, well, 75, actually. But he had come back. It wasn't just a one-off. Back, like true. But it, it wasn't until later that he would come back and it would be kind of a thing of, oh, let's have him work with all the doctors. And, oh, he's going to be this, the doctor's one constant best friend throughout all of his in, incarnations to the point that when you get to the Matt Smith doctor, his death is a major event. Oh, yeah. yeah. Say, even If I know who it is, it's obviously yeah. a yeah, after character. Yeah, the actor died. And then... Peter Capaldi era in which they shit all over that death by having the Brigadier come back as a resurrected Cyberman. Spoilers! <laughs> God, it's just such a bastardization. Still, though. That's what happens. It, I, look, you die and you get brought no, back No, I'm Cyberman. just saying, that's what happens with TV. It's like thing writers do things that piss some people off and make some people happy. And True. It's... It's, I know. It's, it's also part of the problem with having a series that's been around for 60 plus years. That is true. So, yeah. That's true. I mean, on the one hand, you get, you know, resurrected bodies of Cybermen. On, on the other hand, you get Jodie Whittaker. Yeah, which we will, uh, by next time, we'll have to have you two watch the first two episodes and see what you think so we yes. can all talk about it because I, I would feel weird bringing her up. What did we think of that first scene in the museum? Because that's one of the first rewrites that Dix does that is actually to the benefit of the story. I thought it was delightful. Okay, in what way? <laughs> well, I did not expect to see Travers again. I we I haven't seen such a quick turnaround before in oh, characters or villains being or monsters being reintroduced. Yeah. I thought I thought it was fun that he's lived this whole lifetime and it's just been two or three stories for us. But he, you know, was he say he's uh come to have another go at Julius and these sort of right. two quarreling old, old men. It was kind of amusing. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, and this is something that I noted in my notes, in the book, the museum owner is a character called Emile Julius, and he's apparently kind of a Frenchman and very tall and very suave and very dapper, but very much kind of like, this is my yeti. Mm-hmm. On screen... It is the short and miserly Julius Silverstein, or Silverstein, played in a very stereotypically Jewish fashion by Frederick Schrecker. And it's a, it's a frankly embarrassing character. It's almost like, it's almost like watching um, Mer- Merchant of Venice, but with no irony. It's just completely, yeah. It's like, it's my yeti. You will not get it back. I, I, you know, it's just really embarrassing. You can tell that Terrence Sticks is looking at that character and saying, ah, no. no. I was going to say, I appreciate that he thought better of it. Yes. Yeah. He very much did. God, that makes Travers in the 70s, 80s? Because at this, least, yeah. this story takes place 40 years later. 1935 was the setting of the original, so this puts it right in 1975. Which traditionally was the setting for the story. Unit stories tend to get set about uh, five to ten years uh, on from whenever they're at, they actually happen. Okay, so we get that first scene. That's good. And then, as you say, things start moving, right? It was, it was pleasantly confusing because it's not the same story we saw before with the Yeti. I mean, obviously there are a lot of common elements, but with the, the fog and the webbing and all of this, we don't know what's going on. We... We're supposed to, as the reader, have the advantage of already knowing about the Yeti and the great intelligence, yet there are enough new things that it's pleasantly unbalancing. Mm -hmm. I'd agree. Yeah, and this I feel like this is one of the first times that the Doctor isn't immediately thought of as being an intruder or the one causing the problem or you did something to screw us over mm-hmm. in a little while and a thinks that bit. he's the host of the great intelligence or controlling the yeti sorry but overall travers is like mm-hmm. i know the doctor i experienced him in tibet he helped us 
stop this thing. So right. he's on our side. Mm-hmm. So immediately kind of we're, yes, he could be under the control, but overall he is a good guy and mm-hmm. on our side. Yes. And that's drawn out a bit more on screen too, that idea of maybe the doctor is in control. Maybe Lethbridge Stewart is in control. Of course, Dix blows the gaff there by saying, oh yeah, he's, don't worry about that. People are going to be suspecting him, but this is the doctor's friend for millennia to come, so don't worry about it. Yeah, not him. Not him. <laughs> not him. Even though when you watch the TV, it's, oh, I'm trying to remember. Uh, the podcast Unspooled recently talked about Psycho, and they talked about how it is impossible for any of us in 2018 to watch Psycho the way it was originally experienced in 1960, because the the two major things that Hitchcock was trying to cover up in the plotting of that movie, we know from the start. We know immediately. We know that it's Norman, who's the quote-unquote transvestite killer, and we know that Marion is going to die in the shower. Those are the two things that you do not know when you're watching that movie for the first time, but all of us do because we know about the shower scene. Mm. Same thing happens with watching this story and trying to put yourself back in 1968 and say, oh, oh, that's that guy that was in uh, Dalek's Master Plan as Brett Vian. Oh, okay. I w- uh, uh, is he the villain? He could be. It's impossible for us to get into that mindset. This is my impression when you and I went to see Alien on the big screen, as I oh, think yeah. of it as Alien starring Sigourney Weaver, but it's not at all clear until the last 15 minutes or so that she's going to be especially important at all no. compared to some of the others. Not at yeah. all, because they underplay her so severely, and she herself underplays the part, so completely but when i saw psycho the similar thing like i didn't know it was going to be this about this girl you know road tripping around california and it was actually interesting that it was a lot different feel of a movie than i expected oh, yeah. i thought Absolutely. it was just going to be all gothic horror all the time but... right which it isn't um this one comes closer to being that because you have the yeti just being really creepy and this web stuff is just described horrifyingly on oh, them the 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 little figures that they're using to track people and yes. them not knowing about them so it's like how the crap do they keep finding us like mm-hmm. what what especially since the damn things beep yeah that's how they find them it's like beep 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 it's like for fuck's sake really <laughs> okay fine. maybe it's unnoticeable whenever you're scared they do running. have a there is a good sense of mounting stakes as they keep wasting the explosives. Yes. Because they're being suppressed by the webbing. You do feel sort of the mounting panic of mm-hmm. they're running out of munitions. They're True. running out of ideas. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Which is why I felt he just kind of went puff at the end. Like, mm-hmm. oh, and then they win and it's over. Yeah. It's a recurring issue of it. Build up an interesting, difficult opponent. Mm-hmm. And then the whole thing sort of dissipates. Well, especially this era. Because with the Hartnell era, at least, you had goodbye scenes. And you had yeah. going into the next story. And we kind of had that with Enemy of the World, for better or for worse. Because you had Salamander, you know, flying out of the TARDIS and being disintegrated <laughs> in the Vortex. Um, Dix has actually chopped out the aftermath of that scene. And has gone straight to the first full TARDIS scene, which is after the museum scene. Probably because he has faith that the author who will write it will pick it up in their book, or he figures he's the one who's going to end up writing it, and he's going to do it either way. But we're not missing much from having that scene chopped out. But it did have that bridging effect that Allison is missing in this. I thought we were going to pick up a new companion along the way. I Did thought really? either Ann Travers or maybe Knight. I thought the same Or way. the soldier who's always trying to just bail out of the tunnels. Because he's running into opticals. Yeah. I thought that one of them was going to come along. We would not have gotten Evans. Um, because he's essentially a Welsh stereotype joke in the original. Here, Dix has actually put in a few lines to ameliorate that. He actually has Lethbridge Stewart thinking... Oh, what a shame. The Welsh are usually such fine soldiers. Yeah. So it's that's taken taken out. Yeah, because the original script is just kind of full of that sort of, you know, not racist, I guess, but sexist or whatever. See, I don't know what the stereotypes are of Welsh soldiers, so I guess I went straight over well, my the head. the Welsh, period. Yeah. I, I don't know my Welsh stereotypes, which is probably it's just as well. So. It's, yeah, it's not, it's not as severe as something that would be racist, but it's definitely probably classist. Yeah, exactly. So. Um, lots of saying of boyo and all that sort of thing. Yeah. 
Um, it's really only when we get to 2005 and BBC and Doctor Who is being produced in Wales that you get around that whole thing. Because even in the 70s, when we have another story that's set in Wales, we get a little bit of the stereotypes there too, but not nearly so severely. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Anne Travers would have been a marvelous companion. That's the one thing that Dix does that I don't really like all that much. He, uh... <laughs> He kind of screws up one of her best lines. It's when Knight asks her, so, what's a girl like you doing in a place like this? Mm. And her line, as originally given, was, Well, when I was a little girl, I thought I'd like to be a scientist, so I became a scientist. Yeah. And it's a brilliant line. <laughs> yeah, it's very good. It's yeah. just like, there you go. And it's a little... It's a little lesson. Doesn't she finish the line for him? Doesn't he say, "What's yes. a nice girl like yeah. you?" And she's just doing yeah. it in a place, a place like, like this, which actually still worked. Like, yes, I've heard that one before. Thank you right. very much. Yeah. Come up with something new, please. Yeah, but it's not quite as not quite as strong. She would have made a marvelous companion. I think. I thought she was being built up. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I got this. I got the same feeling as well. There were a few people. She was. She was my first pick, though, as someone that could possibly become. You know. Before the end of the book, I thought maybe something's going to happen to her dad. Maybe since he was being controlled by the great intelligence, right. something will happen. She will right. end up with the doctor. Now, there she was supposed to come back. And Travers was supposed to come back, too. In fact, the very next season, they had planned a story that was Yeti-less, but would have taken place on Earth. And would have reintroduced Unit. And would have introduced Unit, as a matter of fact. It did introduce Unit. And Lethbridge-Stewart comes back. The, the professor and Anne were supposed to come back, but by that point, there'd been some dispute with Hazeman and Lincoln, and they refused to allow them to use the characters. So you basically have Epsi characters, stand-ins instead. So we'll get those XP characters later on. and You will know them when you see them. That's all I'm going to tell you. You will recognize them as soon as we get to that story, because you'll be like, oh, there they are. Here they are. <laughs> Now, is Wilt on the new series the only older companion that there's ever been who's a person over 60? except now, in fact, I don't know how old the new one is. Um, One of Judy Whitaker's companions is an older man, too. And I I apologize, listeners, I've only watched two episodes, but I I keep mixing up their names. Graham, Graham, Graham. I think... Anybody's only watched two episodes. I don't think there's His name is Graham, and I think Graham might be... Also older? In fact, let me double check. But why do you ask? Oh, well, if I hadn't, if I had come in with no knowledge whatsoever other than the books, I might think that they were setting Travers up to be a companion as well. That's mm-hmm. a point. Yeah. yeah. And that would have been interesting. They have not done that. Um, the audios had an older companion, um, Evelyn Smythe, who was a professor of history and um played by the uh, late maggie stables but no they haven't had an older companion since will well and he was so adversarial in the last story that we saw him in sort of setting them up so that he could continue looking for the yeti and whatnot uh, that he seemed to be getting a bit of a makeover and had uh, tempered <laughs> in character of the previous 40 years that that's true yeah yeah, he, if, if it weren't for the fact sure. that these companions are always under 40 yes. in the series, I would have thought, oh, maybe they're actually uh, setting him up to be a companion. And that's a point. And that would have been interesting, um, except to do that, <laughs> they would have had to hire the acting superstar Jack Watling, who was Deborah Watling's father. And I'm sure having two Watlings on the payroll, albeit briefly, probably would have put a crimp in their budget. <laughs> because, yeah... There are some fine actors in this episode, to be perfectly honest. The uh, woman who plays Anne Travers is just amazing. They would have been lucky to have her, but she was... I think that actress was early 30s, so she might have even been too old for what they were thinking at that point. Yeah. I mean, Ian and Barbara were mid-30s, weren't they? Well... By the time they left? The actors were. The characters weren't. Because the brief for the characters was that Ian was 30 and Barbara was 28. And as much as I love Jackie Hill... For years Hill, at a time. <laughs> yeah. As much as I love Jackie Hill, she never looked 28. She never looked like a woman of 28. Mm-hmm. Which is fine, because I don't want Barbara to be some young, you know, teeny bopper. I want her to be a mature woman. In the way that Anne Travers kind of is. I was going to say, 
Anne seems to have taken Victoria's place yeah. in this story. Oh, yeah. Victoria is once again back to kind of silly and childish in a way that yeah. annoys yeah. me when she when it fluctuates between characterizations. Yeah. It's it's like we can only have one strong female character. Yeah. But Victoria would have been in there just as much as, as Anne was. And I think it works to when figure it out, so. Victoria is childish in that she's having a good time and kind of goofing off and doesn't have a real sense of the danger. But she just seems kind of stupid here and yeah. cowardly in a way that is not usual for her. Yeah, mm-hmm. and instead of like playing yeah. dumb to get information yeah. or to sneak into somewhere. Or just somewhere, being off in her own little world. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is totally just, she's just relegated to being bait. Which is such a shame, too, because that character was starting to develop nicely, Mm -hmm. and then we hit Enemy of the World, and nothing. Yeah. Yeah. She's going to get a little more to do next time, but then... Does she die? Well, I can't tell you. (laughs) I honestly cannot tell you. This isn't me saying I want her her to, but as things are going, it's... Yeah, let's just say things... My recurring complaint about companions petering out in these stories. More than than reaching a crescendo of their story, they Mm -hmm. definitely tend to end with a whimper. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even the newer ones, even uh, Clara and even even Bill to some degree, they both get killed, essentially, to end their stories. So we get the post-death versions of both of them. Yeah. By the way, they're both coming to Chicago TARDIS. Hmm. Both those actresses. Yeah, I know. You need to come with us this time. That's well, all I will be it. in town this year, Good. so I will be able to. Hopefully they will. Well, we'll talk about that, actually. We've got some decisions to make because Chicago TARDIS hasn't gotten back to us yet. But what we may do is just rent a hotel room there and have a room party and do a gorilla recording there, which could be more fun and actually get us more of an audience that won't be drawn away by bloody Peter Davison. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm not bitter. I'm no, no more bitter than this beer I'm drinking. What else? Let's see. Victoria obviously is not getting much of development here. How about Jamie? Not much more. No. Mm. I mean, he's at least used more, but it's yeah. still very much like he's just... He, he strong acts, man. He yeah. acts interested in the plot, at least, more True. than Victoria yeah. does. Yeah. yeah. And he's fairly quick in the story, too, because he's the one who's like, wait, did they just see the Yeti? Oh my gosh, that's 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 mm-hmm. the Yeti. That, those those beasties that we met back in the 30s. It is the least stupid he's seen, he seemed in several books. Agreed. Yeah. Because Agreed. in The Abominable Snowman, he was always doing something asinine and ill-advised. and. Except it was to... Except it did kind of keep the plot going, right? When yes, yes. The... It, it worked yeah. for comedic relief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they managed to capture a Yeti because of his efforts, so mm-hmm. I would say that's a good thing. Yeah, he's he's at least got more to do. But... Whereas Victoria just gets taken over by the great intelligence briefly. Our, our three regulars are, are pretty pale in this story, I a thought. A little bit. A little bit. Though, it's, it's hard to tell that the Doctor has had a week's vacation from this version because Dix has moved the events around enough and given us that meeting that they didn't get on screen Mm. in a really lovely little scene. In fact, I love all those bits of foreshadowing where the doctor's like, yeah, he seems a starchy fellow, but yeah, I could, I could get Mm. to like him. Yeah. Just enough though, without being overly pompous. Yeah. Yeah, True. That, that line at the very end where the breeders thinking, you know, there should be, Maybe some sort of intelligence task force that is not in the original. No. And it is brilliant. No, all, all the, the little footnotes saying, see this book, see this <laughs> yes. book. It's like reading a comic book, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, look at episode, uh, look at uh, issue 178, True Believers. Oh, and this Excelsior. Is, what, 1976 is yeah. the novelization, and the episode aired when? What year? 68. Okay. But there is that not footnote from... in the book that says... <laughs> Go go buy Doctor Who and the Abominable Snowman, <laughs> where all great books are sold. Yeah, there I was heard... that one. There was one about the... Um... Oh, there was, wasn't there? There was a second one. There was a second one. About... Oh, where is Let it? me find it. The Alton Invasion. Yes, Alton Invasion. Whenever, which... they're, whenever they're talking about unit. Um... Yeah, which is the, uh, the first novelization that Dix does. Yeah. And the first of the modern target ones the first 70s one 
They, yeah, he notes that uh, the doctor becomes unit's scientific advisor. Exactly. And it says, see, Alton invasion. Yeah, so you've had some spoilers already for you, even though you already I mean, know. I already know. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, the readers wouldn't, but then the readers would. That's just it. The people mm-hmm. who were the intended audience for this book would already know all this. Mm-hmm. Um, they're reading this book because they can't see the story. Um, on that score, it does some lovely stuff. It's very descriptive. The firefights are described mm-hmm. well. We get to see more of London completely just dissolved in the web. Yeah. That scene where they're looking up at the sun and they think, oh, it's gone behind the clouds. No, those aren't no. clouds. Yeah. And it's like, that's chilling. Yeah. Also, what about all the people yeah. that died? Like, what about them? They weren't SAG members. It's just like it just like at the end of the story, it's it's just like we're just gonna pick up and carry on. It's like they're soldiers. You mean all the actual no, but like the Londoners. There were parts of the city that were covered in this web stuff. They've been evacuated. The whole city had been evacuated. You don't think that some people would have died at the beginning, the end of the first chapter? They talk about. Oh, in fact, I know that for a fact because. The next time London gets evacuated on Doctor Who, <laughs> you know, then you're going to have stragglers behind, and yeah. it has to stay behind and uh, and round them up. But this time, that time, they're not having to deal with webs; they're having to deal with uh, <clears throat> dinosaurs. <clears throat> so, yeah, the less said about that, the better. Um, <laughs> you're right, though. It it probably potentially has a higher body count than any other Doctor Who book we've read. Except we don't know that. We just don't know that. It's kind of... Yeah. Do you need to do? No, it's just... These are the things that I think about. It's like, this is a major, like, earth-shattering, diabolical, Mm -hmm. great intelligence that, like, damage is done, but all we hear about is these webs in the London underground that... That is true. And I, but I kind of appreciate it when Doctor Who stories do this. They so rarely do. This one almost, except for that first scene, starts in medias res. It starts with the action already going. Mm-hmm. If it didn't have that scene at the beginning of the museum, it might as well have done so. Yeah. Uh, we, this has been going on for weeks, obviously. Um, the very first Eccleston story, you know that the Auton invasion has been going on for a little while because the Ninth Doctor's been there for a while. You just don't know the extent of it yet. Yeah. Yeah, so Doctor Who so rarely does that, and I appreciate it when it does. It doesn't really matter. It's just, that's where my brain always goes. No, I get it. What about all the civilians? Oh, yeah. Oh, I I agree. I completely agree. I see why this would be a much creepier one than what it originally aired than most of the others we've seen, because it is so much about city life and locales that a lot of people watching would... Mm-hmm. Be familiar with right, and a lot of it is shot on film, and it's shot on a much well, actually, it's shot on sixteen millimeter, which you think would uh, cause the quality to go down slightly. It doesn't. It actually helps it. The fact that you have those very dark atmospheric sets for the London Underground are amazing, and the best part is, it uses stock music. But you know what's impressive about that stock music? It's the same music that Kubrick uses for The Shining. Hmm. So imagine that music from The Shining being used for that first scene in the museum. Hmm. The first time I watched that, I was like, the hell? What have they done? How did they know about The Shining music? Not knowing that Kubrick was using stock music. And it's brilliant. It, it, It works beautifully. Everything is just... I think of stock music as something that's for like student films and yeah. and industry videos and things like that. And yet, no, not this time. Well, I say stock music. What I mean by that is that it's music that is pre-existing. So like the entire score of 2001 might as well be called stock music, even though it's classical. Yeah. Yeah, it's pre-existing <laughs> stuff. I think it's Saint Sans. I'm not sure. But yeah, the music works extremely well. Everything is just terrifying, even down to the very ending when you've got the ending. We need to talk about that ending. You say that's where it peters out for you. I don't even, I don't think my brain bothered to retain what exactly happened. It's off in outer space. Yeah. The doctor feels that he's failed because he hasn't actually eliminated it. He's just he's going to download there. it into his own brain. Right, oh. and instead it's just out there in outer space. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't a terrible ending. It's just... 
And then the heroes won, and then they wandered off again. Well, it's interesting because on the Goodreads... Perhaps my attitude is bad. On the Goodreads page, um, our good friend Tom, who I also pulled the review for, said that you almost had that moment where you thought the Doctor was going to succeed, and he was going to download the Mm great intelligence into his brain. That's what I expected. And it would have been interesting to find out what would have happened if that had happened. It would have been a very different Mm -hmm. story, especially if it had been a season finisher. Yeah. Because, well, think of how that would be handled now. That well, would be worth a couple of stories. And, right and yeah, exactly. That yeah. could have just as easily been a cliffhanger in and of itself. Oh, yeah. oh my God, the doctor just downloaded the great intelligence into his own brain. Yeah. How is that going to affect yeah. him? Yes. What is that going to mean? Kind of swerve from that more interesting direction. Yeah, yeah. it does, unfortunately. And so often in 60s Who does that sort of thing. Because that would have been taking a risk. Uh, it's still very episodic at this point. Whereas New Who, wow, that would be interesting. I, it's not going to happen this season because Jodie Whittaker's not meeting any monsters from the past. But just imagine, especially since Richard E. Grant is playing the Great Intelligence these days, she's <laughs> going to download Richard E. Grant into her brain, and he's going to start quoting. Um, she's going to start quoting with Nail and I and other movies he's been in. <laughs> oh my God. Um, but that that ending is pretty good to me, anyway. But what else? As far as the secondary characters, we obviously liked the new improved Professor Travers. Mm-hmm. We liked Anne. A lot of a lot of the military personnel gets uh, confused. Yeah, it's just kind of I've never been good with ranking yeah. and remembering what's what because I'm not a military person. But also, it's just like. Here's this person who does a thing, and he's with this character. They're all kind of interchangeable to me. It's they kind of are. I mean, it is a shame on screen when they when, when some of them bite it, because by then you've gotten to know them a little bit better mm-hmm. by face. But, yeah. Yeah. This um, is not a character moment book. There's some good, snappy, amusing banter, but yes. the but that's much more about language than character. Agreed. Dick's prose is extremely good in this book mm-hmm. he even does one of those uh, archer things you know how they'll have a character say a line but then it'll be mirrored in the very next scene at the beginning of it um, in chapter 4 Victoria nodded meekly in a very small voice she whispered oh Jamie I don't like it down here meanwhile Sergeant Arnold was saying so you don't like it down here eh lad <laughs> <laughs> and it's like lovely and truly being a liaison officer with whom nobody wanted to liaise. <laughs> yes, that was very good, yes. <laughs> There's something about, you know, Travers is cons- widely considered a fraud or an attempted fraud with all his ramblings about the Yeti, but people are sympathetic because they assume he's been, I think the phrase is, unbalanced by his sufferings. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Kind of an amusing phrase. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's some just wonderful writing. In this. And of course that historic moment when they meet. What else can we say about this? There was a there was a nice bit of like physical comedy, I guess is the best way to describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, which which as I've stated in the past, that those are the bits that I'm mm-hmm. I'm getting out of this second doctor's he is a little more comedic and whether or not yes. it carries through on the page or not, mm-hmm. I like it whenever I'm seeing it, but whenever he, he has the control sphere and he's reprogrammed it <laughs> Or he hasn't reprogrammed it yet, but it's still on. He's trying to figure it out, and it keeps rolling away. Uh-huh. Just imagining in my head him like, just, oh, nope, back here. Back. And he just like, that that kind of thing. Yeah. I'm like, I want more of that still. Oh, yeah. You, you get it in the televised story, because Troughton plays that scene with the doctor just being so delighted, he laughs every time yeah. he moves. It, it, it definitely feels like yeah. something that, like, all right. It can do its thing. I have an eye on it. And it's not really going to get anywhere. And he's, yeah, he's just kind of it's playing like, yeah, with come it. back out. <laughs> yeah. Um, they also describe it as, there's there's a part where they describe it banging into the door and how it just persists. Yes. Yes. And it's, it's eventually going to break through that wood door mm-hmm. if you just keep letting it go. Which would never work with the sphere that you get on screen. <laughs> it just I, no. I was wondering if we had on screen that initial scene where it breaks the window but it doesn't fall it kind of goes straight yeah. to the chest of the yeti close it, it comes through the window um it does make its way up the chest yes if i recall correctly but it doesn't go straight to it so it's not like phantasm no <laughs> oh that would have been awesome 
But um, I don't think so. In fact, tell you what, I'm going to look up the ep- episode because it is uh, available through uh, <clears throat> Daily Motion, even though technically they shouldn't have it up at all because you know it's um, violation of copyright. But they do have it. <laughs> Damn it, he knows it's a robot. But Father the Yeti isn't dangerous. Well, it can't work unless it has a control unit. But I've done it, Anne. I have reactivated a control unit. It is them. It is. I love it. This is wonderful news. Mm-hmm. The reminds mm-hmm. me of you. I don't know how to Simple take that, thing. but thanks. Take it in a good way. I always thought out yeah. Travers was a delightful It's disappeared. Look, you must let me have the Yeti back, Julius. Oh, make him understand, Anne. Oh, I understand. I buy the Yeti of you 30 years ago. Oh, now it is valuable, yes? You try to scare me, take your Yeti back. Why? Money. You want to rob me. All right, then I'll buy the thing back if that's what you want. Huh. No, 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 no. Uh, it's priceless. The only one in the world that is mine. You fool. Thief. I'm not a thief. Swindler! Stubborn old goat! <laughs> Take him away! Out of my house! I do love him oh, unless he's plays an old curmudgeon so well. Away somewhere in your laboratory and forgotten it. You've done it before, you know. Um, I've, I've looked everywhere. Oh, well, let's go home and look again, shall we? You know what you're like. Yeah, but suppose... Let's go and have a quiet dinner and you can tell me all about it. Then we'll go home and we'll look for the sphere. Mm. Well, all right. It keeps repeating the same part. Yeah. This is the most effective part. Nobody destroys Julius Silverstein's collection. Nobody, no. And the white has a giraffe in the back. But there's the Yeti. And here comes the sphere. And through the window, does it actually break anything? I think it does. Or is it off screen? I love how it's done on film, too. This is just... I was going to say, this looks terrific. Yeah. It's so much more contrast than it I've... Really in the episode it's I've seen before. It's very atmospheric. Yeah. It's really a shame the Doctor Who wasn't filmed more often than videotaped. And a lot more music than, than we've seen before. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and if this is anything to go by, this is definitely giving me, like... Little, it's creepy. Yeah, it's yeah. creepy. I'll just wait. Because the sphere... Yeah, it doesn't go straight phantasm-like to the chest unit, unfortunately. But we do get the transformation, and we get to hear the toilet flush. There it goes. Ah! Rather unkempt yet. <laughs> A disused yeti. And then, oh yeah, that was terrific. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that looks and sounds great. Yeah, absolutely. So you can imagine that the final scene is equally as good as that. But on the page, you're right; it just kind of goes and fizzles, Mm -hmm. just a tad bit. Allison's still looking at the the phone almost hungrily. It's like no, no, I'm looking at your cat photos now. (laughs) (laughs) They're on the the front. That does make me want to watch more, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's (laughs) it's significantly different from the other clips that you've shown us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it it almost looks like higher production values. Yeah. But then, anytime they go to film, anytime they go to film, much richer, much richer. So, but no, I would actually I absolutely watch that whole six-part thing. I would think should. based on that bit that we saw. We should. Whereas some others are like, well, this would be a lot in six parts. Yeah, well, this yeah. one tends to drag just a little bit around part hmm. four, and for part two, when you don't have the doctor in, I mean, we don't have the uh, footage either. Hmm. We have just you know telesnaps. Still, though, as uh, one character says, I'll have to settle for quantity rather than quality. No. Um, anything else we have to say about it? Something that just the the tobacco tin. Yeah, I didn't understand the relevance. So when of the that. when the web is no longer in it. Yeah, and how yeah. the web. Just... It's a red herring. 
that the doctor thinks that Evans might be related to the intelligence yeah. because the web's not there when very it very well could be just self-destructing. Yeah, or because, if it's not connected to other web, right. it could. Whenever they disconnect it, you hear a screaming sound. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, I think it's described on the page. On television, it's hard to miss because it's so fucking loud. Yeah. yeah. I do remember that. I just chalked it up to just, you know, it's yeah, that's what it people is. screaming. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a the web thing. itself. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I think exactly. I missed that as well. Yeah. I didn't think yeah, about it's that. a little subtle on the page, unfortunately, <clears throat> and that means you miss out that bit. But I think that's probably intentional on Nix's part because he wants you to miss out on that, so you think it's Evans. Yeah. yeah. And it's not. It's that it's Arnold who's much stronger on the screen, and you kind of like the guy because he's this gruff sergeant type. When you first think that he's died in the lab, you're like, oh my god, poor guy. And then when he pops up again, you're like, oh my god, he's alive. And then you realize, oh, he's alive. (laughs) There's a reason he's still alive. And yet he tries to put the blame on Chorley for a second Uh when no one else is around. Which I thought was just bizarre. That he, I don't know if that was for the reader or... Well, Chorley was the obvious one because we were set up to dislike him from the start oh yeah yeah he's every bit as bad as any sort of stereotypical english newspaper man that you can imagine (laughs) yeah he's just you know the worst of the worst oh i'm trying to think what else knight's death is so sudden you barely notice it which is really a shame because you come to like that character a lot on the screen Uh, I noticed that when we first see Chorley, he's interviewing Knight about Colonel Pemberton. He's not named that on the screen. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is wonderful. You speak in quotes. Yes. yes. That, that line's there. Mm-hmm. Calling him Colonel Pemberton isn't because Victor Pemberton happens to be the name of the author of the next book. Hmm. So that's probably a, a callback, which mm-hmm. is lovely on Dick's part to do. This is one of those books that I have reread a couple times as a kid. But only because it wasn't anything else to read, <laughs> so I wasn't in, and I really wasn't intending to like it so much. It and I complain about the ending mostly because most of it did move along so nicely. Yeah, and I had think, a good momentum. I think that's why I'm just like, dang it, because the rest of it, it was suspenseful. It didn't mm. lead me down. You know, there were red herrings. There were characters that didn't know exactly mm-hmm. how to feel about them because mm-hmm. you know. Good sustained sense of disorientation and shifting peril. And, and high stakes. That if yeah. the doctor yeah. down gets his intelligence mm. uploaded into the great intelligence, he's going to be a baby and Jamie and Victoria are going to have to take care of him. Yeah. Which leads you to some bizarre images of Troughton having to have his diaper changed. And I'm, I'm sure that's somebody's fetish. Thanks for that. Sorry oh. about that. Well, we were talking about how Trout could be sexualized in last uh, last uh, story, but... Believe it or not. The time, the good times I miss around here. Yeah, I know. Yeah. See, that's what you get from missing staff meetings. Uh, <laughs> anything else stand out to you? Lines-wise, scene-wise, anything like that? I'm out of contributions to make. Okay. Uh, I'm just looking over the notes real quick, seeing if there's anything else. There are many pleasant quips. I kept better notes on you, know, kind of the funny one-liners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have quite a few of those, too. Poor Tony will be editing this out considerably. Actually, it's easy to edit this stuff out. The only thing I can think of to point out is that not only has Dix rearranged a lot of the events in this book, he also puts different emphases on things. Anne Travers, for instance, in the televised version, does not know about the Doctor and Jamie and Victoria. Mm -hmm. Here, she's heard about them her entire life. Mm-hmm. And that actually kind of yes, yes, like oh, really? That these are the people you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, it makes yeah. it a lot quicker. Um, also, Victoria, when she recognizes Travers, doesn't call him Professor Travers because, of course, when he was in Tibet, mm-hmm. he wasn't a professor yet. No, he was just an adventurer. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So the, that error is taken care of, and yeah, it's a better story on the page. Which is really surprising when you watch the six party and you realize this is one of the better Trouton stories. Hmm. It really is just marvelous. We will have to do a watching party. Yeah. Um, just. Halloween. 
last little little thing um you said that jamie feels sorry about his yeti i thought i liked yes, that, I, love that. I, liked, I liked him kind of feeling sorry that <laughs> we controlled that one and yes oh yes but, and i love when he's waiting for it he's just like yep so i'm just sitting here standing on the platform like an asshole my dick hanging out waiting for the yeti to come up exactly. and sure enough it does and he gets attached to it <laughs> this lovely way yeah <laughs> oh, and when the doctor, uh, what is it? Um, Anne needs some help with the control box, and he says, "I'll come and give you a hand." The doctor promised, but instead he went on playing with the sphere exactly like a child with a new toy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's just brilliant lines throughout this. The prose is nice, and the the biggest problem is that it ends so quickly. Yeah. Even even like five to ten more pages could have just given us that extra little bit that I wanted. Yeah, because if this is the last time we're seeing, and Dix would know this, if this is the last time that we're seeing Travers and Anne, then it would be nice to know what happens. Yeah. But we're not going to get that, unfortunately. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, shall we go to Goodreads? Let's go. I think we shall. Yeah, we're at the hour mark, so I believe so. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own readings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our new Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it here before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. Speaking of which... Bart Lammy, Bart Lammy, our our patron, did put a comment in that in the uh, forum for this particular book, and he said you should have somebody named Rebecca come in and talk about this. And I was like, Do you have someone specific in mind, or I just anyone, any know. one of the world's millions of Rebeccas? I don't know what he meant. I honestly don't, and I even said, Bart, I, I usually have trouble this <laughs> un- um, understanding you, but this time I really don't understand. Well, hopefully he'll tell us, but he never got back to me, so. Hmm. So yeah, the average rating for this story hmm. out of five stars is three point eight, which is much Damn. higher than Enemy of the that World. That's and, pretty high, and about point for... five lower than Anchor Steam Beer, which we've been drinking on another website that does what Goodreads does for books they do for beers. Yeah, it's it's high. It's high. And deservedly, because Enemy of the World, well, as we, as we talked about, it sucked. Our good friend Tom gives it four stars and says, a quick-paced, enjoyable adaptation that ensured the story was already a firm favorite of mine long before I got the chance to see the episodes. There are a lot of very visual sequences of the story that still work well on the page. The opening chapters especially manage to convey an eerie and spooky atmosphere, especially with that music, and what might otherwise have been dull descriptions of bland scenery, the concrete and cables of the London Underground, and the mundanity, mundanity of stations are hardly the most stunning of vistas. Ladling on shadows and making the most out of the spectral webs and fogs spreading through London. The private museum especially benefits from a hammeresque atmosphere. I yes, that first scene looks like it's taken directly from a hammer horror film. Mm. It really does. That remains taut, even as great heaps of backstory are ladled onto us with all the subtlety of a JCB. What's a JCB? JCB? JCB. Seems like I should know this. Oh, Tom, why would you do this to me? The alien nature of the intelligence is effectively portrayed with the question of who can and cannot be trusted and who might be under the influence a much more effective menace than the physical dangers of the robot Yeti. It's not a perfect story, but it's well written, and although some characters are drawn broad strokes and a little stereotypical, some effort is made to make them feel well-rounded and believable, if not realistic. The action rattles by at such a pace that the flaws are more likely to be noticed after you've stopped to think than during the reading. That's true. Yeah. 
someone named Supreme Commander, lowercase <laughs> letters, gave it five stars, saying one of my all-time favorite Doctor Who books and TV serials, everything about this screams gothic. I love the London Underground, I love the cobwebs and mad scientists, and women in science represented properly in the 1960s. I love Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart and his introduction to the Doctor. I love Jamie and the Yetis and the G.I., when it really knew how to do things. The writing of the book is fantastic, with just enough background to do the abominable snowman to make sure you know what's happening and why, but not overclumping the beginning. That is true. When he infodumps mm-hmm. the abominable snowman, he gives us just enough. Onwards, we get insight into the characters. The book follows the plot faithfully. No complaints. A good star for anyone not versed in who. A true classic. And finally, Anon Sundar gives it three stars in a review that makes me think he maybe hasn't read Doctor Who books before. (laughs) It says, The Doctor Who series focuses on unsolved mysteries, Yeti, Atlantis, Mars, and also on unnatural things, eclipses, etc. This is the Robert Stack review, perhaps? I And how are eclipses unnatural? (laughs) Yep. This book focuses on the return of the mythical Yeti in London after someone opened the Pandora's box by thawing a frozen Yeti. No, they didn't. In typical Doctor Who style, he saves the world from being taken over by a mental parasite. Plot somewhat predictable, though. Well, maybe your version... Bizarre. Open the Pandora's box by thawing a frozen, frozen yeti. The person who's making a dollar a review, maybe. Maybe. I don't know, but Yeti, Atlantis, Mars. Yes, they're all in Doctor Who, but they're not unsolved mysteries. Eclipses? All right. So, panelists, what's your opinion? <laughs> Allison, out of five stars, what would you give this? I'd go with a 2.5. I enjoyed... Uh, I enjoyed the whole thing. I talk about being let down at the end, but like I said, I enjoyed much of it. I thought it moved along very nicely. Not a great, you know, not a great uh, work of characterization, but some fun, witty banner, some terrific adventure and atmospherics. Okay. Um, Dalton, out of five? Out of five. See, this is where your scale like, throws me off, because I'm like, 2.5, that's, that's pretty good for Allison. It is. I was thinking of four, but that seems really high for me. Uh, but sure, let's go with four. I'll okay. say four. For what reasons? It kind of is similar ones for Allison, so that's why I'm saying her skill throws everything off. Okay. So it sounds, it <laughs> I sound, ruin it, everything. It, sound, it sounds harsher being graded at 2.5, but yeah, the plot, the plot, you know, we just really kind of jump into it. There's a lot of good kind of moments where I don't exactly know what's going on, and mm-hmm. so in my own brain, it, it very is much like it's fearful i don't know what's yeah. happening i don't yeah. know what i can believe i don't know who is good and who is bad mm-hmm. necessarily mm-hmm. um and then yeah after after seeing that clip it really did kind of bring more of this to life yeah. for me um because i am a lot more of a visual person so yeah I, it's like i wasn't picking up on the super creepiness of it but yes it mm-hmm. is a lot creepier than i was allowing myself to right. to believe exactly. so yeah it, it totally checked off a lot of boxes that I like. So, yeah. Okay. And for me, well, I, I give it a 4 out of 5 as well because this is what a good novelist can do with a story that's already special. Dix has already said many times that his um, criteria for a good novelization is that it has to represent what's on the screen. This is still early enough for him that he's willing to make significant changes mm. to make the story better but not change it so out of proportion that you can't recognize it. Mm-hmm. He's not doing an Ian Martyr. Mm-hmm. He's not doing a Donald Cotton. And that and it's perfectly fine that he's not. Mm-hmm. That being said, he does such a great job with this that there are very few things I have any problems with it. The only problems I really have are, well, I can't really think of any. I'm surprised I'm giving it a four out of five. Probably because it's, it is short. The very ending, so the very reason I'm, mm-hmm. that Allison's giving it the 2.5, I'm giving it the 4. Because it does feel rushed at the end in the way that all of these books do and will until the Doctor finally decides to say goodbye properly to people again, which may or may not happen in his next incarnation. You never know. It is worth waiting to see. <laughs> so, thank you guys. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for your valuable time. Next time, we have the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast Halloween special. (gasps) 
Yes, it means that we are going to be recording something. Yes, we're going to be recording something spooky, and it's going to be something Doctor Who related, <laughs> like, and it will be in print. We have a child learning to articulate. Yes, yes we're going to be hearing I, something we spooky. We will, we will indeed. <laughs> and the thing about it is that this episode, by hook or by crook, even if I have to kill myself doing it, will be released on Halloween. So be looking As will on... we be from the asylum. Yes, of course we will be. A bit of a reach. Yeah, we forgive you. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard so far, and you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Dr. New Target Book Club Podcast, all in word with those spaces. Visit us at Reddit. We're at reddit.com forward, uh, forward slash r forward slash dwtargetbc. Also, feel free to watch videos of our first 12 episodes. Give us a thumbs up or comment at YouTube at youtube.com forward slash user forward slash emperordalic forward slash videos where you can also find Emperordalic's commutes, which is me babbling at the camera while I'm stuck in traffic <laughs> going down I-55. Follow us on Twitter. We're at dwtargetbc. The modern and, emperor. Indeed. And subscribe to us via the podcaster provider of your choice you will find us for sure on soundcloud on halloween if all else fails you email us at dealingtargetdc at gmail.com thank you very much for listening and enjoy your travels bye-bye so what else pardon I think you've said it all. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> well, Fair. good night, folks. <laughs>